So I wonder by a show of hands, how many of you have heard this term, spiritual deconstruction, before? Hmm, maybe half, okay. That's helpful. So some of you may be surprised to know that one of John Piper's sons, Abraham Piper, is actually a TikTok celebrity. Isn't that crazy? John Piper with the wispy hair, stands about yay tall. One of his sons, Abraham Piper, is a TikTok star. But not for good things, unfortunately. He has a whole channel dedicated to deconstructing the Christian faith. He's turned on his childhood faith that he received from his father. And he now is on a mission to help others turn on the faith that they received as children or maybe received later on in life. This uh, trend of spiritual deconstruction is becoming more and more popular. And I think the influence of social media is only kind of adding fuel to this trend because it's giving celebrities a broader audience to talk about these things. So I want to start tonight by talking about the definition of spiritual deconstruction so that we can be on the same page and then we'll move forward from there. Simply put, it is the process of exploring doubts about one's faith. But you can probably see there on your handout, I have a little bit of a longer definition, but from the outset, if you're just trying to wrap your mind around this subject, all it is is the process of exploring doubts about one's faith. But let's look at that longer definition. Spiritual deconstruction is the process by which someone begins to question or doubt aspects of their Christian faith. This process leads to a strengthening of one's faith or a rejection of it. Let's walk through that definition. On the surface, deconstruction of anything is somewhat of a fairly neutral process. In fact, we deconstruct every day in that we examine and take apart what we hear on social media or the news or from our friends. You know, someone tells you that mothers should have a choice in whether or not they can abort the fetus that is growing inside of them. It's compassionate to let a mother choose what they want to choose, right? So you hear that. Now, what do you do with that? Do you just wholesale accept it as truth? Or do you go to God's word to deconstruct that claim and to see what God's word says? For we see that in Psalm 139, 13, that God actually knits us together in our mother's womb. So that's just one instance of a deconstruction process. But again, it is a process. It usually doesn't happen all at one time. You know, if you ever have a loose thread on a sweater like the one I'm wearing or on a t-shirt that you're wearing, the temptation to grab that thread and pull on it is very strong, right? But what happens if you pull that thread? It keeps going and going. And maybe you start out by just pulling a little bit and you're hopeful that it'll just be a small one that comes out. But then you start pulling and it just extends and extends. And then you know you're in trouble when you have a hole in your shirt that's unraveled from this single thread. Deconstruction often starts like this. It starts with an innocent question. Perhaps some of you have heard of Rhett and Link. These guys were two uh, YouTubers who believed themselves to be Christians and even worked in Christian ministry. They worked with Campus Crusade crew, which many of you I'm sure are familiar with. And they have since denied the faith. And now, similar to uh, Abraham Piper, they make a living off of a YouTube channel dedicated to other things. But of one of those things is helping people to think through and deconstruct their faith. For Rhett, he began to question at some point the age of the earth. Is the earth old or is the earth young? 
On the surface, this question is one that actually a lot of Christians have wrestled with over the years. It's a question that Christians, I think genuine Christians, have disagreement on. So it's not that big of a deal. But then that led to a deeper question about whether evolution was a viable worldview within the biblical framework. Again, an issue that we're not going to tackle tonight, but that Christians have disagreement on. But then this question led to whether the Old Testament was historically reliable. Then he wondered if the Old Testament isn't historically reliable, then are the Gospels reliable? And if the Gospels aren't reliable, then what they say about Jesus isn't reliable, and therefore I don't know if I can hold to this faith that I was taught as a youth. He began, I, he began to wonder, if I've been wrong or been taught something wrong about these aspects of Christianity, what else could be wrong? So this is an example of how him starting with a question or wanting to deconstruct a certain aspect of his faith ultimately led him to denial of his faith. But not every spiritual deconstruction process ends with denying one's faith. Consider Frederick Douglass, a former slave abolitionist and orator of the 19th century. He deconstructed slaveholding Christianity in his autobiography writing, what I have said respecting and against religion, that is what I have said critiquing religion, I mean strictly to apply to the slaveholding religion of the land and with no possible reference to Christianity proper. For between the Christianity of this land and the Christianity of Christ, I recognize the widest possible difference. So wide that to receive the one as good, pure, and holy is of necessity to reject the other as bad, corrupt, and wicked. Frederick Douglass was hearing from slave owners that the Bible actually supported slavery, that he needed to submit to his slave masters because of the teaching of Scripture. Frederick Douglass, who taught himself how to read, picked up this book, actually learned how to read from reading the Bible, and said, wait a minute, what that person is saying about Christianity does not comport with the Christianity that I see in the Bible. And so that's a positive example of him recognizing that something that I've been taught actually is not biblical. It's not true. It's not of God. And so now I'm going to go to the scriptures to deconstruct that idea in a positive way. So if at this point you're wondering why we're even talking about this subject, hang on with me for a minute. If you remember back from our first lesson in this series, we talked about how it's inevitable that we are being discipled. We are all disciples. And I don't necessarily mean that we're disciples of Jesus, though I hope that's true. We are all disciples of various things. We are all, if you remember that parable, fish in the water. Whether it's the Bible, Netflix, the sum total of your friendships, Instagram, Ben Shapiro, Ibram Kendi, your Aunt Peggy, we are all being discipled by someone or something. We're being discipled by the voices around us. So as Christians, we must engage in the positive and the negative tasks of discipleship. Who can remind us of the positive and the negative tasks of discipleship? Last time I gave you all this pop quiz, you failed. Anyone? Wrong answers are a great way to learn. Oh, tough. All right, we're going to nail this one before the night's up, okay? So 
So the positive and negative tasks of discipleship. So if we're being discipled by the things of the world, again, whether it's Netflix, whether it's the news channel that you follow, whether it's honestly a group of friends around you that are teaching you to believe certain things. You remember that anecdote about the boy that was trying to date my sister? That's that silly worldview that he was holding, this over-romanticized idea. So in this instance, we, we must engage in what is the negative task. So we recognize that, yes, these voices are influencing us. So let me identify what those voices are. What voices am I allowing my ear to hear? What voices am I letting into my life? So now once we've identified those, the negative task is to deconstruct those according to God's word. In 2 Corinthians 10.5, take every thought captive in order to obey Christ. So again, that negative task is to simply identify what we are hearing in the world, what voices are trying to disciple us, and then taking them captive, right? And then that's where the positive task comes in. The positive task then is like Frederick Douglass to then build back up, according to the scriptures, a positive vision of how God would want us to follow him. So we must engage in both of those tasks if we want to be faithful Christians. I would love to say that it's enough for us to simply go about our business and just believe that we're not being discipled by the world, but the reality is is that there are so many things around us. We all live in the waters of the culture around us, and so we're going to be discipled. So we must negatively deconstruct those things and positively construct them back from the scriptures. So to engage in the positive task of discipleship, or excuse me, let me start with the negative. So to engage in the negative task of discipleship related to deconstruction, we must be able to identify the reasons for spiritually deconstructing. That way we can make sure that they are captive to God's word. And then to engage in the positive task related to deconstruction, I want us to be able to consider the Bible's positive vision for the Christian life through the gospel of Jesus Christ, one who welcomes our doubts, who calls us to cast our burdens upon him. And so toward the end of that first task, the negative one, let's think about that question there. Why do we deconstruct our faith? You can probably see that there on your handout. Look at that first reason. So the first reason is to cultivate a more genuine faith. In a sense, as we mentioned, every Christian can and should deconstruct aspects of their faith at one point or another, just as we saw with Frederick Douglass. The difference in spiritual deconstruction between disciples of Jesus and disciples of the world is markedly different, though. Disciples of this world will deconstruct into a secular worldview. They're going to use their feelings, their social norms, the prevailing ideas about society, groupthink, those types of things to deconstruct. Disciples of Jesus will do exactly what we've talked about with the positive side. They will deconstruct their ideas about Christianity and culture's ideas, not by going to the world for knowledge, but by going to the scriptures. For as Jesus says in John 8, 31 through 32, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Disciples of Jesus know that God's word is truth and it sufficiently, comprehensively, and authoritatively addresses all of our needs such that we lack nothing if our Bible is all that we have. In this room, I have no doubt that you or a friend of one of you will face serious doubts at some point. Some of you may be doubting your faith in this very moment. How should you respond? 
We're going to get more into this later, but I want to say from the outset, you should respond by going to God's word. Let me illustrate this with a couple of passages. I'm going to read them. I think we have them on the screen. So I'm going to read both of them, and I want you to closely listen to what they have in common. Listen to what these passages have in common. Psalm 73 and Acts 17. You can see that this is just a portion of Psalm 73, but it says, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Now to the second one, Acts 18, verses 10 through 11. Now these Jews were more normal, excuse me, these Jews, here we go, from the top. Acts 18. Now these Jews were more... This is what happens when you read scripture from an iPad instead of the scriptures itself. Here we go. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if the things, these things were so. What do these two passages have in common, amongst other things? What's, what's one of the key factors that unites these passages? That's exactly right. Taylor says, spending time in the scriptures. So they demonstrate two different groups of people. These people are trying to reconcile what they have historically believed to be true about God and about their faith and their present circumstance in light of new information or in what they're receiving. In other words, they're deconstructing previously held ideas about God. But notice what their response is. They do it by going to the sanctuary of God, entering God's presence, going to him in prayer. They do it by examining the scriptures daily. So as they're presented with ideas that don't really comport with the information that they've been taught, in the first case, the psalmist is wrestling with why the, prosper, or why the wicked are prospering while he a righteous person is experiencing all kinds of pain. God, this doesn't make sense. I thought your word said that I will prosper if I trust in you. But then he goes into the sanctuary of God and he discerns that the wicked actually are heading to destruction, even if they prosper now. In this second group, these Jews, they've been taught, they've been learned in the Old Testament scriptures and then they're learning all of these things that the apostles are teaching about Jesus and about what the Old Testament scriptures say about Jesus, and they're blown away. It is literally uprooting all of what they thought about the scriptures. But rather than reject the teaching, they dig in. They examine the scriptures more deeply to see if these things that they're being told are actually true. That's exactly what we must do when we face difficult questions. Rather than looking out, we need to look down to the scriptures to see how God addresses these things. Jesus was often deconstructing his disciples' ideas about what the kingdom of God would be like. 
Many of you are probably familiar with the Sermon on the Mount. What's the repeated, repeated refrain in the Sermon on the Mount? You have heard it said, but I say unto you. He was consistently correcting their ideas about who he was and about the kingdom of God. Second reason, to discern why we believe what we believe. I think we also deconstruct our faith because every intellectually honest person at one point or another wants to know why they believe what they believe. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, that each of us is to examine ourselves, to see whether we are in the faith. We are to test ourselves. But we also shouldn't downplay the faith that we have received through family or through tradition. Maybe you, like me, grew up in a household where you were only ever taught Christianity. You were only ever taken to church. You were only ever taught that this word is trustworthy. And you believed it was trustworthy because your parents told you so. In 2 Timothy, Paul commends Timothy's faith, a faith that he received from his mother and grandmother. He writes in chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, But as for you, that is, as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have, a, you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Paul is essentially saying, Timothy, your salvation is because your parents acquainted you with the scriptures, and those scriptures made you wise for salvation. Praise God for faithful parents who raise us to believe that this word is true. You can trust them that this word is true because it does make us wise for salvation when we explore it. We must carefully assess our motivations for deconstructing the faith. So listen, whether you are currently having doubts about your Christian faith or whether in the future, which I think this is probable, you have a friend or someone else who is gonna be working through hard questions, we must assess our motivations. We must help others assess their motivations. Do those motivations come from an earnest struggle to understand why we believe what we believe? Or could it be as a means of avoiding the difficulties of the Christian life? As one author has said, to say deconstruction means choosing easier beliefs is an oversimplification. And yet, deconstruction almost always means adopting views palatable to the unbelieving world. All too conveniently, it moves away from positions on sexuality, gender, salvation, sin, hell, and other issues not embraced by popular culture. The vast majority who claim to be deconstructing move with the flow of their surrounding culture, not against it. This movement demands safe space to ask difficult questions, yet ironically, modern deconstruction often settles for easy, comfortable answers, or it simply chooses which aspects of faith to retain based upon personal preference. So there, I hope that you can see some of the difference between an earnest deconstruction where someone is really wrestling with hard questions, trying to understand why they believe what they believe, trying to make sense of doubts that they have, and someone who's really just on a mission to deconstruct for the sake of destroying their faith. Maybe you're in the throes of doubt right now. You wonder if the things that you've learned from your youth about Christianity are actually true. I by no means want to minimize those fears or those doubts. It is a insanely scary question to ask. What if I'm wrong? What if I've been wrong? What will my family think if I walk away from the faith? What will my friends think? 
But don't let those doubts simply be a cover for not earnestly searching through those questions. Third, we spiritually deconstruct because we've experienced church hurt. These next three reasons I'm going to mention I got from a pastor by the name of Joshua Butler. This first one he points to is church hurt. Maybe you've grown up in a church where leaders or members didn't patiently bear with you through hard questions, but instead silenced you and just told you, have more faith. This type of example can lead people later in life to become disillusioned with the church. But this should not be cause for rejecting your faith. Maybe some of you have listened to the Mars Hill podcast about Mark Driscoll. You see these stories of big pastors who use their authority and their influence, not for the good of their members, but ultimately for their harm and for their own prestige, their own power. I would just say to you that it's easier to move on to something different than it is to lament a negative example and to join a positive example of a local church that is word-centered, that is saturated with the gospel. Fourth, we spiritually deconstruct because of poor teaching. Related to church hurt is the issue of poor teaching. Maybe you've been taught that in order to be a good Christian, you not only need to believe that Jesus is sufficient for your salvation because he has justified you, that has made you righteous before God through his blood as you professed your faith in him, but you also need to abstain from alcohol for the rest of your days. Maybe you've been told that you need to only vote for one political party in order to be a Christian. There are examples of churches that take the true gospel, which says that we are justified by God's grace alone through the person and work of Jesus Christ, and then they add extra works that the scriptures aren't exactly clear on. Those examples of poor teaching really can disillusion us. They can make us upset and they can make us just want to reject the church or to deconstruct elements of our faith. Unfortunately, there have always been those since the outset of church history who have sought to delude Christians by altering or adding to or subtracting from the scriptures. And that hasn't changed today. But don't let bad teaching have the last word. Seek out good biblical teaching. Seek out teaching that holds the Bible to be authoritative and that humbly and graciously seeks to understand and apply it. Fifth, we spiritually deconstruct because of a desire to sin. Remember, all of these reasons that you see there, if you're not currently wrestling with these things, still keep these in mind because these underlying reasons are often at the heart of those that you may be walking with who are dealing with these issues. In a society and in a culture, I think, that doesn't like to pin sin upon other people or who is just very against judging the motivations of one's heart, we're very slow to cast judgment upon others, which in some ways is good. We shouldn't cast judgment where unnecessary. And yet we shouldn't be afraid that if someone professes to be a Christ follower, to hold them to that profession because they are representing Christ to the world. And if they're representing Christ to the world, but they're living in a way that would not honor him, then that's a lie, and it is harming Christ's reputation. So we owe a responsibility to hold them to the profession that they've made. In this way, we need to gently, compassionately, patiently work through this, and this requires sensitivity and patience. But we should recognize that some people deconstruct because of a desire to sin. 
they do this as a disguise for their sin. Rather than come to terms with their sinful behavior or desire, these will deconstruct their faith because they want to make the scriptures fit their idea of what their life should be like rather than what the scriptures actually teach. The response to this is to, again, walk with them in patience, but call them to confess their sins and repent. So now that we've walked through some of those reasons that we've been able to learn how to identify spiritual deconstruction, to identify some of the underlying reasons for it, I want to talk more about some solutions. If we left it here with these reasons and with these kind of underlying motivations, we'd be like that friend or coworker who's the greatest problem identifier. We all know that person who can identify any problem, but when it comes to proposing solutions, they're completely silent. So if you or someone you know is wrestling with their faith or really struggling with hard questions, I want you to know that this church, University Baptist Church, we value your doubts. We want to walk with you through those hard questions that you have. If you're telling yourself right now that there's no way that this church or its leaders or even its members would want to put up with me through some of these hard questions, that's simply a lie. Don't believe that. As a church who values God's word and who believes that this word is sufficient to help us live godly lives and to know how we can be wise for salvation, there is no question you can ask that we're afraid of. The, 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 the Bible is not like an encyclopedia that gives a soundproof, bulletproof, waterproof, whatever kind of proof answer to every single question we can ever think of, but it does sufficiently address every single doubt that we may have. And we can reason from the scriptures to come to reasonable answers for any doubts that you maybe have. We will never dismiss or turn you away. And I would encourage that if you profess to be a Christian here, that that's the posture that you should always have with your friends. And don't be afraid to offer that up. If you suspect that a friend of yours might be wrestling with hard questions, be willing to pry. Ask what's on your mind. What are you wrestling with? Let's talk about it. Don't be afraid because you don't know all the answers. None of us know the answers. People are going to ask hard questions, and it's perfectly okay to say, I don't know the answer, but I would love to find out with you. And then you can go to the scriptures and find out with them. The worst thing that we can do when someone is wrestling with hard questions is to dismiss them, to turn them away, or to simply tell them they need more faith. We need to show them the love of Christ, and we need to point them to his truth in God's word. A simple but sufficient solution to the question of spiritual deconstruction is that aged, old Sunday school answer. Jesus. Like the Greek men in John 12, I love this passage, they say, we wish to see Jesus. They hear about this Messiah and they say, we wish to see Jesus. All of us, when we're wrestling with doubt, should say, oh, this is too much for me. No, instead we should say, we wish to see Jesus. Beholding the wondrous glory and beauty of Jesus Christ is the antidote we need to cure our doubts and fears of spiritual deconstruction. Those who are deconstructing their faith may be experiencing a number of different external or internal pressures that has led them to go through this process. 
We can't assume that simply handing them a stack of apologetic books is going to solve their doubts. Just yesterday, I was in Mullins Library, and I was talking with our beloved friend and colleague, Alex Shepard, who had perfect attendance up until tonight. And he mentioned that he had experienced a process of doubt in his faith from high school on into even his freshman year of college. He read a number of different apologetic resources, and though these helped him process some of these difficult questions, he said they didn't ultimately solve or cure any of those doubts. And in typical Alex fashion, he just left it at that. So I had to pry a little bit more. And I said, well, so what brought you out of it? I mean, like, you seem pretty zealous in your faith now. What changed? And he said, Trey Richardson and I read the book of Romans together. So here's a clear example of someone who was really wrestling with different questions and doubts of the faith. These apologetic books were helpful in some regards, but ultimately it was reading the Bible with another Christian, an older Christian who took the effort to seek him out and to walk with him through these things that bolstered his faith. So what do the scriptures teach about the assurance that we can have in Jesus? Jesus gives rest for our souls because he is gentle and lowly in spirit and takes our burdens upon himself. Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 through 30. Jesus never casts out those who are his, John 6, 37. Jesus protects his children from all harm, John 10, 28. Jesus has compassion on those who are, who are harassed and helpless, Matthew 9, 36. Jesus is a friend of sinners, Luke 7, 34. Jesus saves to the uttermost, Hebrews 7, 25. Jesus advocates on our behalf before God the Father, 1 John 2, 1. Jesus moves with compassion, empathy, and grief over our own sorrow, John eleven thirty three. 33. Jesus welcomed his own disciples' doubts, John 20, verses 24 through 29. Jesus demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were yet sinners, he died for us, Romans 5, 8. Ultimately, our assurance of salvation that is, our confidence that we are truly in Christ is not to be found in ourselves. If you're wondering, how can I know that I'm truly saved? It's a question we all wrestle with at some point. The question is not to look further inside and say, how can I truly know? How can I figure this out? How can I really put my finger on it? The answer is to look to Jesus the writer of Hebrews talks about those who had faith in the promises of God in chapter 11. In verse 11, he says that Abraham considered God faithful who had promised. Though his eyes had not yet seen the promises that God had made, promises of that promised land, promises of an offspring that would be as numerous as the stars of the heaven in the sand on the seashore, he believed God because he trusted the one who was making the promise. Do you trust the one who promises to secure your salvation if you place your faith in him? Not do you trust your circumstances, not do you trust your ability to figure these things out, but do you trust the one who promises to preserve you until the very end 
because God has said that he will do that. If you have doubts or if you're wrestling with your faith, take God at his word and trust that he has promised to keep you, to preserve you to the end. If, that is, (coughs) you have placed your faith in him. You see, Jesus is only going to preserve those who have neglected themselves, those who are poor in spirit, those who don't say, yes, I can figure this out on my own, but those who say, Lord, like the tax collector, have mercy on me, a sinner. There's nothing in my hands that I can bring you, God. My sin has completely blinded me. I'm a wretch. I'm a sinner. I am incapable of saving myself. And yet I believe that what Jesus has done by taking my place on the cross, by bearing the full weight of the penalty of my sins upon the cross and seeing God's wrath poured out upon him, I believe that that work, his death, but then the fact that he was also raised from the dead is sufficient to save me. Because Jesus on the cross, once and for all, as we said earlier from that song, has paid our ransom. He has paid the debt that we owe to God for our sin through his death and resurrection. And the only thing we have to do is to admit that we can't do anything on our own. We just have to place our faith and trust in him. And if you're ever wrestling with your faith, if you're ever wrestling with whether or not God is truly gonna keep you to the end, you can have confidence that what God starts in salvation, he will bring to completion. Paul talks about this in the book of Philippians. He says, I am sure of this. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So if you have placed your faith in him, you can trust that no matter what you go through, as long as you hold to him, he will bring it to completion so that in death you will be united to God. As we close with that last point, look out to the church. I want you to turn with me to the short book of Jude. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Jude. Jude is the second to last book of the Bible, just to the left of Revelation. We're going to start in verse 17. Jude 17. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. 
and have mercy on those who doubt. (coughs) Save others by snatching them out of the fire to show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him, that is God, who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. In these closing words from Jude, Jude shows us that it's not uncommon for us to face doubt. There's going to be people who are trying to cast divisions upon God's word, who are going to cast divisions among God's people. His response, verse 20, is that we are to build ourselves up in our most holy faith by what? Praying in the Holy Spirit's, the Holy Spirit, keeping ourselves in the love of God, and waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. Those are three practical exhortations for you now that you can be built up by praying in the Holy Spirit. We see in the Psalms a number of psalmists wrestling with doubts. And what did they do? What did we see in that Psalm 73 and in that Acts passage? They went to God. They went to his word. They went to God in prayer to wrestle through these things. And we, by doing so, keep ourselves in the love of God as we wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. I heard a sermon by a pastor one time who said that Christians can be characterized as those who wait together. (laughs) So as those who have joined ourselves into a local church, we are those who patiently wait. And waiting is hard. We endure many trials along the way. We endure many doubts along the way. But if we endure, we can trust that God is gonna give us the faith to endure. And then that last word there in verse 22, have mercy on those who doubt. Again, just another call. This is implying that there will be those who doubt. There will be those who seek to spiritually deconstruct their faith. And yet we are called to have mercy on them by patiently enduring with them, by pointing them to the truths of God's word, and ultimately ultimately, by helping them to see Jesus. Because we can have confidence that that closing doxology in verses 24 and 25 is true, that God keeps us from stumbling and that if we are united to him in faith by repenting of our sins and believing in him, that he will present us blameless before the presence of God's glory with great joy. We can hold to that promise with confidence. Let's pray.